Episode 21 of UConn 360. That is the world's only podcast that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. I'm your facilitator of sorts. My name is Tom Breen. Joining me as always, my colleagues, Julie Bartuka. Hello. Ken Best. Hello. Does it mean 21 we're legal completely every every place in the country? We're now legal. We Buy still, us a drink. Still can't rent a car. Uh, we have a great program for you folks today, as always, and... Uh, why don't we jump right into it with some Husky headlines? Julie, what's new in your world? Got a new study by researchers at UConn, Johns Hopkins, American University, and UC Davis, which found that a black student who has just one black teacher when they're young is more likely not only to graduate high school, but significantly more likely to enroll in college. The findings, published recently in a working paper titled The Long-Run Impacts of Same-Race Teachers from the National Bureau of Economic Research, included that black students who'd had just one black teacher by third grade were 13% more likely to enroll in college, and those who'd had two were 32% more likely. Another related working paper by the same team, titled Teacher Expectations Matter, found teachers' beliefs about a student's college potential can become self-fulfilling prophecies. Every 20% increase in a teacher's expectations raised the actual chance of finishing college for white students by about 6% and 10% for black students. However, because black students had the strongest endorsements from black teachers and black teachers are scarce, they have less chance to reap the benefits of high expectations than their white peers. Both papers underscore mounting evidence that same-race teachers benefit students and demonstrate that for black students in particular, positive outcomes sparked by the so-called role model effect can last into adulthood and potentially shrink the educational attainment gap. Very interesting stuff. Ken, what do you have for us? Uh, we're winding down the semester, and there's lots of things still to do on campus. Uh, we have been celebrating the uh, 50th anniversary of the Ac- African-American Cultural Center on the Storrs campus and elsewhere. But we have some really neat activities that are going to wind things down. Uh, a major exhibit recently opened at the Ballard Institute and Museum of Puppetry, Living Objects. African-American puppetry focuses on the work of African-American puppeteers. It was curated by uh, Ballard director John Bell and Paulette Richards, who is an Atlanta-based teaching artist and docent at the Center for Puppetry Arts Worlds of Puppetry Museum. And there's lots of things going through April of next year connected to this exhibit, and you can find out more by going to the Ballard website, BIMP, B-I-M-P, at UConn.edu. On December 6th, the UConn Symphony Orchestra will feature the winners from the annual Aria Concerto Competition, which is always a very big deal. The students who win get to perform with the entire UConn Symphony, and it's going to feature the premiere of a previously unknown work by Margaret Bond. For more information, you go to music.uconn.edu. And the final fall performance of the Connecticut Repertory Theater will be a Civil War Christmas, an American musical celebration, which will be performed through December 9th. And for more information, go to crt.uconn.edu. We may be winding down the semester, but one thing that's winding up is winter weather. So so what we do uh, when there's winter weather, sometimes we uh, cancel class or postpone class or curtail class. We've already done that once. We had a big winter storm this month, what November. What curtailing class until? <laughs> so, well, you know, we, we stop having class at like 3.30. Ah, yes. So uh, we communicate that. This is part of my job. Sometimes people say, Tom, what do you do all day? What the heck do you do for a living? <laughs> and part of it is emergency communication. We have a system called the Yukon Alert System, which is how we communicate with the campus community. But now you can get Yukon Alerts even if you are not part of the Yukon community. <laughs> We have a, it, it, there's a tool we have that enables us to send messages to people who don't have UConn email addresses. 
Um, and this is good uh, for our area because of, for example, the churches who are near campus. They don't have UConn email addresses, but if something is happening on campus, they should know. Merchants nearby. If you have a student, if you're the parent of a student here, the grandparent of a student here, the interested friend of a student here. <laughs> Get and, a little creepy. I don't and know. you want to know what's happening. Uh, you can sign up for these alerts. They're called UConn Alerts. And here's what you do. You take out your cell phone and you text UConn Alert. That's one word. doesn't matter if it's all capital or no capital. It's all the same. One word. UConn Alert to 888-777. You'll get a message back saying you're now signed up for alerts. And it also tells you how you can unsubscribe if you want to. This is a great way to find out what's happening in terms of uh, emergency or urgent situations, not just weather, but uh, any kind of unforeseen situation where we'll be communicating with the campus. So if you want to know, UConn Alert. 888-777. And you'll get a text message from me at some point. So easy. It's so easy. Alert.yukon.edu is a website you should also visit if you're interested in what's happening on campus. I get my messages whenever it's necessary on my phone. It's true. Yes. Very convenient. Speaking of urgent. <laughs> just don't even try. Just sorry, who are you okay. going to toss it to, Tom? We'll All right, so it's, actually, I want to hear from Ken because this is a subject the three of us have talked about at length. And I'm very interested in this topic. Ken, tell us what we're going to hear. Three years ago, nautical archaeologist Krom Batsvarov left Yukon's Every Point campus to join an international team of scientists for the largest maritime archaeological expedition ever undertaken. It's known as the Black Sea Maritime Archaeology Project. Professor Basarov was the co-director of the team, which was led by Jonathan Adams of the University of Southampton, who is the marine archaeologist who has directed some of the world's most important research excavations, including the Mary Rose, which was Henry VIII's warship, which was lost in 1545 and found in 1982. Now, the primary mission of the Black Sea Project was to investigate the changes in the ancient environment of the Black Sea region, including the impact of sea level change during the last glacial cycle. They knew they would find shipwrecks because of the long history of trading that is in the Mediterranean region. But what they did not anticipate was finding so many ancient ships that were so well preserved on the floor of the Black Sea because there's low salt content and dissolved oxygen known as anoxic waters. The most significant discovery among the 60 shipwrecks that they explored uh, using high-resolution video cameras was a 2,000-year-old Roman ship with its mast, tillers, and rope still intact. Professor Botsaroff is still going over the findings from uh, three years of research. I asked him to recall the first moment he saw the Roman ship. We've been surveying shipwrecks for about three days straight, and I had not gone to bed at all. That was the last sight in a very long run, so everybody else had gone to bed by the stage. I was the only one left. John Adams had said, oh, give me a call if something interesting, uh, something different shows up. And at that stage, I didn't pay attention to him, because suddenly, on the screen of our cameras, we were beginning to see the stern structure of this vessel. It was obvious immediately that this is the quarter deck. The railing was still in place. But there were two interesting stanchions, or what initially looked like a stanchion, that surprised me because they were way too heavy in comparison with the rest of the railing. So I asked the pilot, athlete to start moving the camera upwards and to follow one of these, especially since they continued above the railing. And at the top of, when we reached the top of this post, I saw a tenon or rather a mortise for a tenon. And that could mean only one thing. This was the, ten uh, the mortise for the tiller. 
And therefore, these were quarter rudders. It was completely different from anything that we had seen up to this stage. We're talking about 2016 season. We had seen mostly 17th and 18th century wrecks. Extremely interesting. But all of us were wondering why are we not finding any medieval or earlier when there should have been even heavier traffic back in earlier times, especially in the Roman period. We had found one medieval wreck, uh, 10th century, mid-10th century, uh, right, based on the amphora analysis. But that was it. And suddenly here it was, this complete vessel, must still standing. It, it is amazing how close John and I were in dating it even before the results came out. Now we have also C14 dates, uh, radioactive carbon-14 analysis that confirmed our initial estimate. We thought it is probably mid-13th century. Well, it proved to be exactly mid-13th century, about 1230, in fact, plus-minus. We returned to that wreck, also to the 10th century, in 2017 to continue recording it because by then we had acquired an even higher resolution cameras. We had 4K cameras for the final season, including the Catex. This is the steel photography uh, camera that we use for the 3D photogrammetry. So we produced new models for these vessels. What was your thought about what you would likely see down there? I had absolutely no doubt that we're going to have a field day of shipwrecks. This is going to be a treasure trove especially since we were going to work in deep waters. Anything from about 150 meters deeper into the Black Sea, it is considered to be an oxyclayer. No oxygen, therefore the wood-eating worms do not survive, therefore shipwrecks should be in excellent state of preservation. In reality, there are some microorganisms that do live there, and there is some degradation of the wood, structurally speaking, but to the outside, it looks immaculate. On some of our images, you can see even the two marks still. And I'm talking about the Roman wrecks. I'm not even talking about 18th century. Ironically, our older wrecks are better preserved than the newer ones. That is because of the changes in ship construction. The old ones, the so-called uh, shell-based construction. The planks are assembled, edge-fastened to each other with wooden mortise and tenon joinery. Ancient-style shipbuilding. That system of shipbuilding disappears. Scholars are still trying to pinpoint exactly the moment when it disappears, but somewhere between the 10th century and the 11th century, this is superseded by the modern way in which you raise the frames of the ship and you cover them with planking. But the ancients did exactly the opposite. So they are better preserved because they do not depend on uh, metal fasteners, while the newer vessels in the Mediterranean Black Sea are iron fastened. So I was excited because I knew that we were going to see shipwrecks that we can't see anywhere else. And, and primarily because this location, the Black Sea, was a very heavily trafficked waterway uh, hundreds of years ago for, for trade. In fact, thousands of years ago. Uh, we have indirect evidence for uh, such connections in the ancient world as far back as the 5th millennium BC. Because significant portion of the famous Varna necropolis, much of the treasury found in it are shells that arrived from the Cyclades, which is roughly speaking 2,000 kilometers away from Varna. 
and we have evidence from Varna-related material culture 2,000 kilometers further north into what is today Ukraine and uh, Russia. There is no question that the ancients used the sea as communication, means of communication. We do know for a fact that from, from the 7th century BC onwards, we have very good records of regular trafficking because this is the beginning of Greek colonization in the Black Sea. Yes, there have been periods in which seafaring has slowed down, but it really is just the connection with the Western world that has slowed down. From about 1451, when uh, Constantinople fell into Ottoman hands, until 1776, the Treaty of Kyuchuk-Kanarja, the Black Sea was closed off. It was an Ottoman lake. But even then, there were the Cossack raids of the 16th and 17th centuries. In fact, we found evidence for these raids. We found some of the boats. Previously, um, the, the type of new discovery that has been uncovered through this exploration was only known th from writings, descriptions, I guess in journals and ledgers and any other reports of, of, of commerce that were uh, available. Contracts for shipbuilding also, yes. The newly high-definition images that you have, uh, to be able to see tool marks, I would think is very extraordinary because then you get a real idea of how these things were built. Oh, absolutely. This is incredible. Technology has made things possible that 10 years ago we could not have hoped to do. Yes, we could have videoed some of these wrecks, but that does not really give you a whole lot. Even now, watching the modern high-definition videos, they give you absolutely nothing. It is only after you process them and create the three-dimensional photogrammetric models that you begin to see what to realize, to understand what you were looking at during the videos. Let's move to, to the classroom. You, you said you've been using some of uh, what, you, what you have brought back in the classroom. What do students gain from seeing this compared to what they had before? Your teaching must be completely different. Mm, I'm afraid so, yes. <laughs> I took a Yukon student with me both for the excavation of a prehistoric settlement in the Black Sea last June, Luc Lebrun. And um, after that, I took him also in the field in the fall for the actual cruise and surveying underwater. So he was exposed to the exact techniques that we were using and worked with them and learned them in the field with real material. He went to graduate school, and ironically, he has more field experience and more interesting wrecks than his professors. This is what UConn students gain from this. They are at the forefront of our changing understanding of interconnectivity in the ancient world. Of how, for example, a quarter rudder on a Roman ship was attached to the vessel. We no longer need to wonder what the text actually means because we have them. We see the entire structure, we see even the ropes, and as they were lashed, the list of publications on the subject of how accurate iconography of the ancient world is vis-a-vis -vis the ships, we have answered this question also. Professor Basharov says there was another unexpected finding by the project, and I think many people know about Greek pottery. You see the urns and the vases in, in museums. Mm -hmm. Often they depict scenes from Greek mythology. There is one specific vase in the British Museum from the 5th century that shows Odysseus, the hero of Homer's epic poem, The Odyssey, tied to the mast of his ship so he would not lose control of the ship because of the siren song. That's a very famous story in Greek mythology. Uh, for centuries, the scene was thought to be an artistic interpretation of the events that, 
and the sh- uh, that the ship may not be real. No one thought that was accurate, but Professor Botchroff says the Black Sea Project found a 5th century ship that was almost identical to the ship painted on the vase. So it wasn't just artistic interpretation. They were actually being accurate in what they were showing. Very cool. I take that to mean the Cyclops is also real. That's yes, how, that's and the I, sirens. The Mermaids. Sirens. That means Ariel is real. I take away. That's what I'm taking away from yep. this. That's what we learned today, folks. <laughs> Julie. <laughs> Let's change gears significantly. Let's change gears a little bit. You have an interesting story um, that also uh, has kind of a, a, a news does have peg, a news hook, which say. is really not intentional, actually. Um, so just about a week and a half ago, as you're hearing this, an international tribunal backed by the United Nations for the first time called what occurred in Cambodia in the 1970s under Pol Pot's Khmer Rouge genocide. They had never said that before, officially. According to a report in the New York Times, the tribunal convicted a 92 and an 87-year-old man who were the two most senior surviving members of the Khmer Rouge regime of genocide, various crimes against humanity, and violations of the Geneva Convention. Both were sentenced to life in prison. Nearly 40 years after the end of those genocides, which killed an estimated 2 million people, a group of researchers here who work across disciplines are working to improve the lives of survivors, especially those who are refugees here in America. Tom Buckley of the School of Pharmacy, Megan Berthold of the School of Social Work, and Julie Wagner of Behavioral Sciences and Community Health over at UConn Health have studied the health problems suffered by these refugees related to their long-ago trauma and have come up with several interventions to improve their health. You can read more about that in the summer 2018 issue of UConn Magazine at magazine.uconn.edu, which I wrote. The team works closely with Khmer Health Advocates, or KHA, in West Hartford, the only Cambodian-American health clinic in the U.S., Buckley recently brought TNV Kuch, a survivor and founder and head of KHA, and Mary Scully, the clinical director of KHA and an RN, in to talk to pharmacy students about how they can make a positive impact on survivors of trauma. I don't know how many times you've had the opportunity to talk with a survivor of genocide, but I would guess it's not that frequently. P1 students are those in their first professional year of pharmacy school in Tom Buckley's public health and healthcare policy class were given this rare opportunity recently when Cooch and Scully came to visit. It's a very broad foundational course of public health and health policy. And so part of the course we talk about refugee and immigrant healthcare issues and we fold it into cultural competency and cultural humility and health literacy. And so we can't think of a better example of how to tie in all those factors together, in addition to health policy factors, than having them come in and talk about it because it's a direct experience. So I really want them to not so much talk about the Cambodian experience, but how the Cambodian experience relates to so many other experiences that we're having right now. You know, the Syrian experience, for instance, Afghani, Iraqi, Sudanese, whoever are coming in right now. The work the Yukon and KHA team has done with Cambodian refugees has identified several ways to help the population and others like them. Cambodian refugees and other refugee populations who have come to the U.S. in recent decades have similar health issues, such as sky-high rates of diseases like diabetes and hypertension, which have been tied to cortisol spikes related to their trauma and PTSD, as well as higher early mortality and suicide rates. Key takeaways from the work done by the Yukon and KHA team include the importance of community and healing, and that in the U.S., many providers just aren't asking these patients the right questions. Scully addressed this in her lecture. I'm always glad to come out here to, to work with you guys because pharmacists have proven to be a, a tremendous asset to our program, in part because for some reason pharmacists get it when it comes to being engaged with patients and being part of the community. 
we see a lot of trauma. We see it on our TV sets every night. We've just experienced the trauma last week, you know, with the bombs and the killings in the, in the synagogue. We're always seeing trauma. But the funny thing is we never talk about trauma after it's over. We never talk about what happens to the survivors of trauma. We just assume that they go back into society and that it all works out in the end. And so today I really just want to, to get some thoughts in your head that you will keep with you. Scully provided a three-question mnemonic to help the room of future pharmacists remember their purpose when dealing with patients and to help them get there. Do you know what you need to know? Can you do what you need to do? And if not, why? And the same thing holds for the patient. Do they know what they need to know? Can they do what they need to do? And if not, why? And you're central to answering those questions with them. She shared anecdotes of KHA patients, including one who was sexually abused during the genocides. The patient suffered severe gynecological problems and visited her OBGYN here in the States monthly, yet the physician never asked about her trauma. I mean, does that make sense? When you have patients, you don't ask them what happened to them. You have somebody who came from a country. I mean, we have people coming across the border. We have kids in, in tent cities who are in cages. And we're not going to ask them about their experiences? As a healthcare provider, that's incompetence. Scully also impressed that every interaction with a patient counts. So I'm going to leave you with this. It isn't that you can make a difference. It is that you do make a difference. It's that you are going to make a positive impact on people or you're going to make a negative impact. But you are not going to be neutral in their lives. This especially holds true for community pharmacists, who recent studies show patients see up to 10 times more frequently than they see their primary care doctor each year. Scully says that's why it's vitally important for her to speak with pharmacy students. It has to do with the, the pharmacist being in the community, because the more I come to understand this, the more I, I see that we developed a healthcare system that moved people farther away from the community. There's medicine, and then there's healing and healing takes place in the community. A pharmacist is located right in the middle of the community and a good pharmacist gets to know people's names, he knows what's going on with them, he has a relationship with them, and, and that's healing. Pharmacists also specialize in medication management, another key component of treating the refugees at KHA and others like them, Buckley says. Future pharmacists can help by seeing the bigger picture of patients' many disparate treatments. When we see patients for the first or second time, and I'm involved in them either with these guys or with Dr. Miller, my biggest job is taking medicine away from people. Mm. It's not adding medicine. I almost never add medicine because they just, they've ne never yeah. gone to a place that has put all the pieces together. Scully and TNV Cooch, the Cambodian genocide survivor with whom the students were able to talk in class, said the Yukon students who work at KHA every year bring an energy that makes them want to continue when the work gets hard. They learn just as much from the students as the students learn from their experiences working there, Scully says, if not more. Cooch says those volunteers and the students she meets in Buckley's class give her hope for the future of health care, not only for refugees and immigrants. They show emotional, they show interest, they show that they want to learn. Mm -hmm. And they don't afraid to do a hard, you know, Thing. They just need uh, support, you know, need the direction, and they move. You know. So I, when I see young generation, and just like the pharmacy, uh, pharmacists, uh, 
student, young student today. It gave me a lot of strength and, uh, and feeling that, you know, our patient, not only the, the, um, the refugee and immigrant, but all the patients across, you know, they will have a better care. Great story. Uh, that was very interesting. You know, actually, when I was growing up, uh, there was a family in our neighborhood. They were refugees from the Khmer Rouge. Wow. Years ago, I did a story about the aftermath of the Vietnam War and uh, refugees trying to get to the United States. Mm-hmm. And it's never easy. The most interesting thing about this research, well, there's a lot of interesting things, but to me is that um, what they're doing, they're coming up with all these different kinds of ways to treat people. And they're finding that no matter where these refugees came from, they're suffering the same related health problems, things that might be surprising. It's not just PTSD. It is diabetes. It's hypertension, things like that from the PTSD, long ago cortisol spikes. And so these can be applied to many different refugee populations. Very interesting. Well, uh, why, don't we, uh, why don't we visit Tom's History Corner? Let's do it. Let's, let's take a trip down to the History Corner with the name change pending. Mm. All promises, promises. Promise. Well, you know what? Hey, maybe it'll happen by episode 30. All year here at the university, we are celebrating the 50th anniversary of the founding of the African-American Cultural Center. This is probably a topic we'll return to. But for this uh, History Corner, I want to talk about an incident in Yukon history uh, that kind of played a significant role nationally that maybe not a lot of people know about. After uh, World War II, there was renewed sensitivity to the question of uh, racial and ethnic discrimination. Mm. Um, Although it was still kind of a time where there was a lot of um, insensitivity at Yukon, there was, uh, in 1946, there were complaints about a professor who was using the book of Genesis to explain why there was segregation in the United States. In the account I read, it said the professor was also under review for other complaints. So, Did he get fired? It was unresolved. I couldn't find anything about that. Um, So uh, the students at UConn actually decided to uh, have a referendum, a a university-wide referendum that would prohibit any organization that discriminated against uh, people because of race or religious background or ethnicity from receiving any university resources. So they couldn't meet in university buildings. They couldn't get university funds. So this uh, resolution in 1949 was passed by a vote of 1,267 to 210. And one of the immediate uh, effects of this was on the Greek life organizations on campus because many of them belonged to national organizations that were white only. So in 1949, there was a student, uh, a freshman of native of Manchester, like me, named Al Rogers, who was a very accomplished uh, student. He was the president of the freshman class. He was in the varsity football team. He, he pledged the uh, Phi Epsilon Pi fraternity, and they saw him as like a great get for the pledge because he was so prominent and well-known. Uh, he was also African-American. And so the national organization asked the UConn chapter, they said, hey, this is going to be controversial. So instead of initiating him in February 1950, can you wait until the next semester? And we, we'll talk about it at our national convention. Oh, wow. And so the student chapter at UConn, the chapter here at UConn said, okay, we can wait. And uh, over the summer, when uh, school was out, the national organization voted not to accept Shocker. him. Yeah, they didn't come back and talk about it. They just said, sorry. The UConn chapter responded by saying, if you don't let us initiate him, we're just going to break away. We're going to leave the fraternity. So they were suspended by the national fraternity. This earned them the praise of U.S. Senator William Benton, the namesake of the museum where formerly we broadcast from. Mm-hmm. He praised the uh, UConn chapter and said, you and your organization here have set an example not only for the state of Connecticut, but for the entire nation in standing up against discrimination. I love that this was happening in 1951. That's great. And they were followed by chapters at uh, NYU, CCNY, Queens College, Dickinson College, and Georgia Tech. 
the, all those uh, chapters threatened to leave the national fraternity unless they let Al Rogers join. And I have to say, particularly Georgia Tech, that took a lot of guts yeah, at this time that's really to do that. So the national organization in December of 1950 backed down. They said, okay, you can join. Al Rogers, who actually went on to uh, lead one of the first integrated army units during the Korean War hmm. and a very successful career in Northeast Utilities and actually got his JD from UConn School of Law later on, said the whole experience uh, was very stressful for him as a student, but also prepared him for the future uh, in, in the army and then later as an executive. And then sort of as a, a follow-up to that, other Greek organizations at UConn now had to face either leaving their national chapters or getting their national chapters to change things and let them accept members from all races and backgrounds. Four Greek organizations actually had to withdraw from the national organizations because mm. the national groups refused to integrate. And one group, Alpha Gamma Rho, actually changed its national constitution because of UConn to end a ban on African-Americans, uh, Jewish members, and Asian members. Although the, apparently the president of the Alpha Gamma Rho at the time complained bitterly to President Jorgensen about being pressured. I had no idea that we had such a, a, what's the word? Pioneering? Yes. Yes. History when it came to these inclusive measures. Well, UConn was one of the few universities to encourage Japanese Americans who that were in know. internment to come to campus to get an education because that was one of the ways you can get out of the camps. Mm -hmm. So that's a positive history corner. That's an awesome history corner. I really like that one. Thank um, you. And if anyone knows, actually, if, if uh, Al Rogers' class of 1953 is out there, I'd love to talk to him. It'd be great. As a, a fellow Manchester native. There you go. Uh, all right. Well, this has been a good episode. And if you want more, you can follow us on Twitter at UConn Podcast. I posted a GIF of Julia Child playing with a turkey yesterday. <laughs> no, well, all right. Because as we're recording this, it's right before Thanksgiving. Yes. You can also uh, subscribe, rate, and review. Force this on your family members. Please subscribe. Yeah, please subscribe. We're very happy with our numbers. I we will are. say that. But inexplicably, many of you are not subscribing. And I feel like it just, it does the work for you. It does the work make for you. Make your life easier. Make your life easier. Why make it so hard? Julie, where can people find you? And what should they know? Find me on Twitter at Julie Bartuka and at Yukon Podcast. And if you want to find out how a special group of medical literature experts at Yukon and the Jackson Labs are searching for cancer's kryptonite, Visit healthjournal.ucon.edu for a very cool story by my colleague, Kim Krieger. Ken, what about you? As always, today.ucon.edu is where you can find me. And you can find us on the air, right? Every Friday? Yes. Fridays at 11 o'clock on 91.7 WHUS in stores. We have a slightly different version of the podcast. We eliminate the news because that keeps us down to the time limit that we have on the air radio and uh, WHUS has been doing that and will continue to do that I just finished the next month's work of uh, episodes thank you Ken and thanks to everyone at WHUS it's a thrill to be on the radio you can find me on Twitter at TJ Breen you can also find the old pictures and news account the Yukon history thing I do it's at main underscore old Let's go. We try to do things that are very awesome here, and we hope <laughs> you're having a very awesome time. And we'll see you in a very awesome fortnight. Bye.